When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined today by John McKenzie. Hi, John. <laughs> I would never say podcast. Come on. No, that's true. Sorry. Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> How's it going? You right? It's just a podcast. Yeah, really, really good. And all the better for seeing you there on the other side of the mic. That's right, my big face. Now, my mm. big face spent a very enjoyable period of time to be determined by the editor today, listening to you talk all about shots, shots and goals, and sometimes just shots, and all different Premier League players. And uh, the exciting bit is that it's all buried in the second half, so make sure that you stay <laughs> to listen to John talking about specific players. Specifically, I have to say, my favourite bit, when we start talking about Odson Edouard, Crystal Palace mm. striker, I I quite liked that, and I don't like football. So I think if you stick around uh, for those bits, that'd be great. But if you could, if you could pricey, and I mean pricey, John, <laughs> what we talked about in today's episode, what would you say off the back of a huge amount of research that you undertook um, with no one asking you to? <laughs> yeah, so basically I logged timings for all the Premier League primary strikers um, because I was interested to see how timing and touches influence uh, a player's ability to score score goals essentially and a lot of it was done in the context of thinking actually we use expected goal models to just mainly think that shot location is the most important thing therefore we can just discount every other aspect of a of a a striker's sort of shooting action and with this I just thought we'd wanted to push back a little bit and see if there was anything I could learn from it. Okay, now let me translate that to the people listening. John spent 500 <laughs> hours, no, not that. John spent several hours logging 500 different shots from all different Premier League strikers so that he could learn about what's better to do in football and what is uh, not better to do in football. And some of the learnings from that, learnings, are actually very interesting. And some of them are tediously dull. But don't worry, I'm here <laughs> to hurry things along. And uh, with that in mind, should we just crack straight on with the episode? I think so. I think so. Okay. Uh, now. <laughs> now, John, you have decided in all of your, I don't know, infinite wisdom to spend hours and hours of your professional time, time that you're paid for, by the way, just a, a quick reminder, to watch footballers score goals, haven't you? Why have you done that? I mean, I did a lot of the watching outside of my working hours as well. So let's turn that right, right. back onto you from the off. But Mike, will just, uh, producer Mike, we'll just, we'll just snip that <laughs> out. But, uh, go on, John. Yes. I, so in the end, I've watched over 500 shots in the Premier League this season. Um, <laughs> yeah, and what I was essentially doing with those shots was was logging timing and touches, which is something that I don't have access to the data on. So I just sort of figured, let's find it out myself. But this was all, I guess, prompted by 
some of the comments that I saw from Alan Shearer after one of Arsenal's games where they struggled in front of goal and he was spending a lot of time talking about how uh, the players should have basically got the ball away quicker when they were shooting. If they'd have taken their shots quicker, they would have had more joy in front of goal. I also came across... It's something you hear from pundits quite a lot, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, get it out from under you. Yeah, and something that I think I found working on this is that a lot of people who work in the game, they view the shooting actions very much in those sorts of terms. Um, So then I think we'll go on to talk a lot about how um, a lot of ideas about shooting are now influenced by the concept of expected goals, expected goals models. But what I found talking to people who are actually coaching is, yes, they'll talk about shot location, which is a big part of what XG models work off. So where the basically place of the pitch where you're taking your shot from. Um, but I think if you are a coach um, and you're working or an analyst and you're working for a club on the pitch, you, you obviously don't just say, well, make sure you're shooting from the best locations. If you do that, everything else will follow. The emphasis is much more on uh, technique, things like can you take a few of your touches out here? Can you get the shot away as quickly as possible? And, you know, a lot of this all ties back into itself as well, because um, I think if you if you analyse what goes into a lot of expected goals models, particularly at the elite end of the game, so the, the, the companies who are pro- providing expected goal data to professional clubs, a lot of them will take into account defensive positioning and goalkeeper positioning. Um, at the point at which the shot is taken. So if there's more players between you and the goalkeeper when you take your shot, then it's likely that that chance will be will be a, a lower value chance, um, which indicates, I think, intrinsically this idea that if you can get your shot away quicker, the opposition will have less time to position defenders in between you and the goal. The goalkeeper can have better time to set um, their, their, their feet. So this was the sort of um, premise that I was working with. Why do we not talk about... Surprise. Shot- the premise of surprise. The premise of surprise, yeah. Why do we not talk about sh- the touches that are taken before shots? Um, and it's worth saying at this point, actually, as, a, as maybe a bit of an aside, when data gatherers talk about touches, um, and you'll see you know, people will put out data saying this player had this amount of touches during a game, intrinsically you think, well, that means how many times have they actually physically touched the ball? But that's not actually yeah. true. Most of the time what that figure represents is the amount of actions that they've had on the ball right so if a player receives the ball turns does a dribble and then passes they may get three touches for each one of those events whereas what i'm interested in is literally the amount of physical touches that a player takes before they shoot the ball um so it's it's worth just clarifying that at the outset because i think a lot of people don't realize that um so when most data gatherers use the word touches what they actually mean is actions or events um but i was kind of asking why do we not think about those and and that's part of the reason why we don't think about touches as much because the word touches has a different meaning depending on on touches doesn't even mean touches yeah yeah exactly which is what a world we live in very confusing yes yeah Um, okay well this is it's interesting it leads me on to my next question because i don't know about you i've always thought that xg is a bit of a dangerous catch-all for uh, <laughs> for shooting opportunities um, for reasons such as the the ones that you kind of novelously explained just there. Would you like to try a little harder to, to, to <laughs> evaluate that? Yeah, so an expected goals model, essentially all it's doing is taking 
all of the shots that we have in a data set. So you may go back a few seasons across a few different leagues and you'll say, these are all of the, this is all the shot data that we have. We know what's happened in these scenarios. Um, and you'll have a number of different variables that you're putting into those models. So the most important one being the XY variables, which is literally the position on the pitch that the shot is taken from. Um, yeah. And that makes a... Is that represented in like a, in a, like a number, like a coordinate? Yeah, almost? an XY coordinate, right, yeah. Right. So okay. the, the data gatherers will log the location of the shot and it will be represented as an xy coordinate um and obviously that's the most important one right because the closer you are to goal the more likely you are to score obviously there's other variables that come into that we've talked about um things like defensive positioning but the ball height or the kind of pass that has gone into the box if it's a cross it's going to be much harder to finish than if it's a cut back along the floor for example um and how do they add that is there an is there a z in there for when it's above the ground <laughs> yeah, from yeah. the third dimension. I guess so, I guess so. Um, I know that StatsBomb use um, shot, uh, the height of the ball when the shot's taken as a, as a variable right. as well, so I guess they just add a, yeah, another another axis onto their, uh, to their analysis. What happens when <laughs> they enter the fourth dimension? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm doing, right, because the fourth dimension is time, right, so I'm wanting to assess the, how the timing comes into it a little bit more. But um, the, the, the problem is, is that because shot location is the primary factor. It's going to influence the likelihood of a goal being scored much more than the other factors. There's a tendency for people, I think, in analysis to focus on shot location as the as the only thing that really matters, right? As long as you're getting good shots, as long as you're getting shots away in good locations, you don't need to worry about it too much. Now, obviously, as XG models have got more, um, uh, have got more advanced, there's more and more variables being added to them. But that, that principle is going to re remain the same pretty much all the way through. It's most important that you're getting shots from good places. But I think what I was wanting to um, uh, interrogate a little bit more was, okay, we know that shot location is important, but is shot location important just by dint of the fact that you're closer to the goal? Or is there a, a sense in which if you're getting shots away in good locations, you're actually able to do some of these other things that we've talked about a little bit better? So the timing of right, the shot, yeah. you're able to take fewer touches before you get your shots away. Um, and so I just wanted to dig into the data a little bit more uh, and find out what I could about, about shot timing in particular. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. Then. You said you watched about 500 shots. Mm-hmm. Take us through one. What are you logging? What what? Because you're doing. You said at the beginning that this is data that you don't have access to. By which you mean that at the Athletic we have data provision mm -hmm. from certain companies that do this gathering and then sell the data to either you know publishers, media groups like like mm -hmm. us, or to teams directly. This isn't something that we have available. So you've gathered it yourself. Mm -hmm. Well done. Good job. What were you actually gathering? What were you noting down for each of these goals that you watched or, or shots that you watched? Yeah, I should clarify and say I don't, we may have access to some of this data, but actually in part, one of the reasons I wanted to gather the data myself is because then I had a, just a much better... Because you don't trust the data providers. <laughs> you not, think you're better than right, them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think yeah. they're as good. At You're sending a message today to the King, Opta King and <laughs> Statsbomb people to say, I know what you've done. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was more just that I had a sense of exactly what the data I was logging looked like and how it translated into into the tape itself. So, yeah, yeah I, I went through and essentially what I, I went on Scout and I went through all of a, a player's um, shots, essentially, um, in the Premier League, so that doesn't count. What, what's Y Scout? Y Scout is a um, it's a it's a, uh, a subscription service online, which um, basically has access to the tape from uh, the, the games that teams play, but they also cut up the 
the tape so that you can search by action for each player, right? So any sort of action, yeah. those, the thing we talked about before as touches. So anything that a player is doing on the ball, which you could say that's a tackle, that's a shot, that's a cross. Um, they, they clip it up so you can search for a, a, all of the players, I don't know, defensive actions if you want to, if you're, if you're a scout and you want to just compress it all together. Yeah, so I went through and I, I searched by shot and it's worth clarifying that um, shots don't include penalties, in my data set and they don't include they don't include headers either uh, because um, which I, I think makes a degree of sense but it didn't matter too much for me because obviously a, a header is almost always going to be a one touch in fact I've never seen a two touch header where someone's headed it and then or, or passed it to themselves and headed it there. there must be there must be please, please tweet directly <laughs> to John McKenzie to, to let him know about the two header goals yes yes I'm sure. I can think of some players falling over backwards having a, one controlling touch and then another yeah, yeah, yeah. knock it happens in Rocket League all the time I've seen um, I actually saw one yesterday where someone takes a shot uh, the ball comes in it's a cross field pass right across the face of the goal the player shoots but hits it into their own head and then it bounces in so there are there are examples of that happening so but it's good for you to hold me to account I, you know i i should be clear that's about what i'm here things. for yeah um yeah so yeah and i i started off with me going through all of actually kai havertz and gabriel jesus's chances because i was doing yeah. this for an arsenal video that i was thinking about um and then i thought well you know i've got to compare them to Erling Haaland, right, who is the gold standard of what you should do if you're a striker and you're trying to score goals. And then it and got... you knew that just because he scores goals or because you knew about his technique? Are you working like backwards from the fact that he has results or just because you assume that he, he's good? I worked backwards from the fact that, well, actually, initially, it wasn't the Arsenal thing that I was interested in. I was interested in the difference between Darwin Nunes and Holland, and I wondered if there was anything in timing right. that could show why Holland is more likely to finish his chances than Darwin Nunes. So I started off with all of Darwin Nunes's chances, and then I looked at Holland because I was like, Holland just scores a lot of goals, right? And he he doesn't do much else other than get in the box and and score goals. So I figured that he was going to be the gold standard, and my research does it does confirm that like if you want to be a good goal scorer be more like Erling Haaland which I don't think is particularly sure, groundbreaking sure. research really yeah. um, I think they call that confirmation bias, yeah, but go on. yes um, I then added Gabriel Jesus and Havertz because I did this Arsenal video looking at um, whether or not Arsenal should should be thinking about shot timing if they want to improve their, their goal scoring this season um, and then you know, I just slowly started adding more strikers in there um, just to get a better sense of you know what was standard amongst Premier League strikers um, and I ended up logging the primary strikers of all 20 Premier League teams um, I wish I could have done all of the strikers in the Premier League but it would have taken ages um, plus it's not just like shots aren't exclusive to strikers sure sure um, and yeah we'll talk a little bit about that later on I think because you know people were asking me whether or not for example all two all, uh, 80% of goals that are scored come from one or two touches. Um, and people were saying, yeah, well, that makes sense because the majority of chances are going to be one or two touch chances. So um, I can tell you exactly what percentage of, of shots that Premier League strikers are having. And it is under 80%. So, you, you know, you sh you, what you should be trying to do as a, as a Premier League team is generating good chances that you can take with one or two uh, touches um, but we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about Richarlison but yeah as I ended up I've ended up with a big data set um, from from all of those things and the things that I was logging you might be interested to to, to hear it's just three things basically so um, for each chance I I log the difference in time between the first touch and then the shot 
which I'm calling timing here. So whenever I'm talking about timing, I'm literally just talking about the the amount of seconds between a first touch and a shot. Then I'm logging. Let's let's pause there for one second. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm imagining that you're sat there with a little stopwatch, pressing the button with your thumb. Are you just doing it based on the video? Yeah. With the time on the video. Yeah. Okay. And so, it, and, it, and is this to a decimal point, or are you just full fat seconds? Two two decimal points. Two decimal points. Yes, yeah. and wow. you'd be amazed actually because I did quite a bit of like control testing, um, and a lot of the times when I felt you know that it was uh, that it was an important number to be logging, I would do it twice, and you'd be amazed at how consistent it actually is. Just doing it that way obviously it's not very yeah. accurate but um i also figured that because it was just me who was logging all the numbers if it was out on anything it would be consistently out so um yeah take it with a pinch of salt but um again i just wanted to have a sense of like the speed at which strikers are generally getting the ball away after they take touches for sure i think it's just important as we're listening through this that the audience are, are able to <laughs> imagine you in your habitat. So was it pants or did you have trousers as well when you were doing this? You, were, you said Fully you were doing clothed. some of it outside of work time. Fully, Fully clothed. clothed at all moments, I think. Yeah. Were you wearing a tie or? No tie. No, I was quite casual no. with it. But And you know how your glasses rest on the tip of your nose sometimes. <laughs> did, did you slid them down for that extra level of football related seduction? That's or right. Was yeah. it just normal? Just the closer yeah. the glasses are to the screen, the more accurate the reading. Uh, I was okay. fine. Okay, we're all there with you now. Tell us what you logged number two, Mr. Beaver. <laughs> number two is just touches. So like I say, every time a player touches the ball after receiving it before shooting. Um, so touches here. Okay, are... question. Yeah, go. I'm going to pause you every time. Now, question. With a touch, what if a player did a scoop where they held the ball <laughs> on their foot? Is that one touch? Is it two touches? Were there any scoops? There were no scoops to my knowledge. There okay. was a couple of times where... A player would have the ball kicked against them. Uh, a bobble. A bobble, yeah. Um, and then sometimes yeah. there was a few times where a player had a shot and then it bounced back off the goalkeeper and then I just counted it as the next shot as a one-touch shot rather than a se the series. So, but that's the, the extent right. to which touches were, were complicated. Because a shot is a touch. A shot is a touch, yeah. That's what okay. I'm calling it. Okay. So a one-touch right. shot is just receiving the ball and t shooting without taking a prior touch. A two-touch shot is taking the setting touch and then taking the shot yeah 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 okay fine and mine would be a 17 touch shot but that's that's right that's for a different podcast. i didn't have any 17 touch shots in my database um so yeah what's the height to be fair though at this point what is the highest um, touch number pre-goal i think oh before a goal that's a different thing entirely i think maybe yeah. about five or six touches was was the the most before a goal in the Premier League. Really? Uh, six touches I've got here. Six touches. Who for was Evan. that? Evan Ferguson took six six touches for the second goal in his uh, hat-trick against Newcastle. Um, Do you remember that goal? What were the circumstances? Um, usually, whenever there's a lot of touches before a goal, what happens is they take it around the goalkeeper. Um, but I'm pretty right. sure that all of Evan Ferguson's goals in that hat-trick were from distance. So he must have dribbled around a player, reset himself, and then taken the shot. Um, a cool goal hmm. yeah yeah okay but, no, that's, that's good right yeah. carry on and the other thing that I logged was whether or not a goal was the result of the of the action as well although I haven't really done much um, interrogation into the relationship between goals and touches and timing because I think it becomes very clear quite quickly that there's no correlation between the amount of touches you take and how many goals you're you're scoring um, which is I guess something we can start to come on to now in terms of what it was that I found from the from the data Oh, that's confused me. Okay, fine. What did you find from the data then? Well, in, in terms of timing, I think the, the big 
the, the confusion that is going to arise is that obviously players are playing in different systems and different systems are going to try and generate chances for their strikers in different ways. Um, so, for example, um, the player... I mean, Erling Haaland takes shots quite quickly with few touches. He is also a striker who plays off the last man, stays roughly between the the the, the, the width of the penalty box. Uh, and, you know, if he does drop in, it's not to pick up the ball, turn and then run towards the goal. It's to lay the ball off and then get into a dangerous goal-scoring situation. And part yeah. of the reason why he's so dangerous is because he plays that role for a team that are very good at generating those kind of chances in Man City. I was going to say, that's probably like really key, right? He's surrounded by players who are able to put sure. put it on a dime for him. If you can, so he gets 14 goals in, in so far this season. Um, if you compare him to a player like Alexander Isak, who is playing for Newcastle, um, who has 10 goals, so still like high volume goal scorer relative to the system. He is one of the players who has the lowest number of touches, sorry, the, the highest number of touches before shooting in, in the league. Um, so let me just pull up the table. So yeah, he is the slowest um, shot taker in terms of touches. So 3.57 um, touches per shot from him so far this season. He's just behind Gabriel Jesus, who's on 3.04. Now, both of those players, I think if you talk about the team play style, it becomes interesting, right? Because Alexander Isak is playing for a direct team. We've seen him pick yeah. the ball up in wide areas and dribble towards the goal. So there's a lot of situations where he's getting a lot of touches before the final shot goes away. And Gabriel Jesus... Or even you just expect him to be further away from the goal yeah, when yeah, he picks generally. the ball up. Even if, even if he's in a number nine position, if they're defending, then he wouldn't be as close sure. to the attacking goal yeah and you know they're not a team who are doing high possession stuff so it's not that they can possess the ball in the final third and he can just sit in as we've said between the center backs and wait for the ball to arrive actually a lot of the time because they're playing so dynamically if he picks the ball up deep the idea is that he tries to get towards the goal as quickly as as possible so that's obviously inflating his touches and then Gabriel Jesus is playing a, a, a very much false nine position for Arsenal, right? Which is he's dropping off and becoming quite a creative player. Likes to receive the ball, particularly in the in the left half space. Um, and a lot of times, you know, he'll pick the ball up and then try and fashion a shot for himself. Um, so his touches per shot is is uh, quite high. But interestingly enough, if you compare him, um, and what I did is I I compared all of the strikers in my um, data set against two touch shot samples because the idea then was like okay given that team play style is so important here can I isolate the sorts of shots that are quite similar to see uh, whether or not the timing is is notably different um, for, for these different players so two touch shot as I said before you receive the ball take a setting touch and then take the shot which you would expect to be a sort of fairly similar action for most players as well. So you've got a bit of repeatability there. And then as soon as you start looking at those numbers, it's quite interesting how quick some of these players jump up. So um, two-touch timing, the quickest player is Erling Haaland, 0.7 seconds per per two-touch shot. Um, he's the quickest by a long way. But Gabriel Jesus now has... And, and, and Haaland in the touches per shot is really high as well, right? So he's 1.8, 2, um, 8.3, I should say, rounding up uh, touches per shot. So right at the opposite end of the scale to Isaac and Gabriel Jesus. He's right at the top when it comes to timing. So he's getting his shots away quickest in the two-touch sh shot sample. But now we've got Gabriel Jesus and Alexander Isaac at six and seven. So they're... Um, in those scenarios where they're only taking two touches before shooting, they're actually much quicker than a lot of other Premier League strikers. And in my hypothesis, hypothesis, that is why um, you know Alexander Isak is is scoring 
a, a lot of goals. Gabriel Jesus, the sample size is a little bit skewed because he's not taking as many, so it's hard to read anything from it. But the takeaway that I get from that is maybe if he took more two-touch chances, he would be getting a higher volume of, of, of shots because a lot of the time when he's having, sorry, goals, because a lot of the time when he's having these shots, he's doing them around crowded boxes because he's picked the ball up deeper, the opposition have been able to set themselves defensively. And so they, those chances become much lower value chances um, in those moments. So, th- so this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning then, where uh, like the instinct in the mind of a striker when they have the ball on, maybe let's just say just inside the box, but the box is crowded because they, they, their team has had high possession. Mm-hmm. The instinct would be, to shift it around until you get the right angle and take more touches in doing so. But are you saying that probably what's better is to try to get the shot away quicker when the team, even though they might be in the way, they're not prepared? Yeah, so I think it's really important with all of this data to not just try and use it prescriptively in the way that Charles Reap did with the data that he had back in the 1950s, where it was like most goals are scored from one or two or three passes. So you shouldn't ever try and pass more than two or three times like if if the right. takeaway that people are getting from um the the data i'm producing is well players should just shoot as quickly as possible because it's you're more likely to score from that well obviously that's not true because you have to be in a good scoring goal scoring position for that to be to be the case so that's just a caveat to get out there everything that i've okay. said about shot location prior to this is true it remains true all we're trying to say is within that what can we learn from from shot timing? And I think as a general rule, if you're in a position where the ball arrives at you around the penalty spot, you're gonna it's almost in almost all cases, it's gonna be better for you to try and get the shot off within one or two touches than it is to to hold onto the ball a little bit longer. Uh, so I've just put out a Kai Habits video, which is uh, available across all of our, our our platforms at the moment, where we looked at um well, it's about Arsenal's finishing, as I've already said, but we start that off by looking at a chance that he has where if he takes the first touch shot, so just plays it straight away, it's just the goalkeeper between him um, and the goal. But then he takes three more touches before shooting, and at that point there's now five defenders and the goalkeeper between him and the goal. So obviously it's going to be harder to to score that. Um, so as a general rule, yes, I think if, if you can get shots away quicker then um, you're going to be a, a more dangerous goal scorer. Um, but um, with Erling Haaland, for example, if we look at that data on that two-shot, two-touch shot sample, we can see that one of the reasons why he is so dangerous a goal scorer is because he is taking those two-touch chances quicker than anyone else in the data set. So, the, you know, he, he has the ability to take the setting touch and then the shot quicker than, than most other uh, other players, so that means necessarily that he is going to be able to just get the benefit of that shot going going off. Uh, just a you know, it's a fraction of a second, but it's a fraction of a second where the team could be getting into a better defensive position. Where the goalkeeper goalkeeper could be setting themselves. Okay, let's let's talk about this by team now because I think that's going to interest people. Uh, no, I was going to say no. To. I think a little face, aren't you? I want to push. I want to push. Tell the one tell thing, the listening right. audience about the face you just made. What face was it? It was a disgruntled face. Your mouth went face. all small. Yes, I've a got, little open. I've got things that I want to talk about before we start talking to about teams. Oh, good lord! So the first what thing, what are they? List. I don't know. Bullet point okay, them to okay, me, and then I shall decide. Okay. The, don't forget, I'm the host on this episode, John. Yeah, it's it is true. Um, it's hard to to let my baby into your hands again, but yeah. The the, the first thing we we should talk about is uh, we should talk about. The fact that timing is different to shot location because in shot location it's always better to be closer to the goal. It's always going to make you like more likely to score. Whereas with shot timing, it's not quite that simple, right? Because you can you can have negative effects by shooting quicker. 
Um, so we should talk about that. We should also okay. talk about um, touches as well before we get to everything else, because I want to talk about Richarlison and the kind of uh, chances that he's taking. Okay. I've decided to talk about the first thing you said first. <laughs> yes. So you're you're now welcome to do that. Yeah, so I think that the reason why it becomes complicated because is because, as we said before, if you want to say getting shots off quicker is generally the best thing to do, the logical corollary of that is, oh, you should just try and get your shots off as quickly as possible. But obviously... Like Ronaldo did against Porto in the 2007 Champions League, whatever that was, you know, that one from yeah. 40 yards. Is that the last time you watched a football game? 2007? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah but, but obviously there's diminishing returns to speed, right? So the, the general principle that I operate now when watching uh, striker shots is, it, yes, if you can get the shot away as quickly as possible then do it but you shouldn't do that in such a way that compromises on your actual shooting action right because if players try and shoot too quickly it can have a negative effect on the just the biomechanics of their shot um erling Haaland is the best at, at best ball striker in a goal scoring situation because he can take those shots quicker without compromising on his ball striking mechanic um there's a couple of players who show up quite high on my data um in the timing per shot um, category. So Neil Mopé is number two after Richarlison um, and he's on 0.4665. Um, that's the the average amount of time that he uh, takes on the ball before he shoots it. He's getting the ball away really quickly. But as we know, Neil Mopé isn't necessarily a high volume finisher. I think he gets the benefit of you know getting his shots away quickly because he will occasionally connect well and beat the goalkeeper, beat the defence. But a lot of the time you can also see that there's problems with his shooting technique because he tries to shoot too quickly as well. So it's about, right, it's right. about getting the combination of things right. You want to be in good shooting positions. You want to take the shot as quickly as possible, but without compromising your shooting biomechanics. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So and Richarlison leads that chart. Richarlison leads a lot of the data, actually. Um, so the, 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 This is interesting to me because at the beginning of the season... When Ange Postacoglu was... Is that when he arrived at the beginning of the season, Ange mm -hmm. Postacoglu? Well, yeah. beginning of pre-season. Uh, yeah. There were a lot of people in my life, you being one of them, your friends being the others, who got very excited about Richarlison and what he might play like in an Ange Postacoglu team. And then I got to enjoy for, I would say, three months him not really doing that <laughs> and calling you all stupid. Uh, before I've had to bite my own tongue because uh, things have started working out for him, haven't they? It might be nice to set a little bit of context around that, John, yeah. before we go on to talk about his his touches. Yeah, so as I said before, I think 80% of goals that are scored in the Premier League are scored with one or two touches. And I think if you once you realise that, you recognise that actually a big part of having a successful goal-scoring team is to generate those kind of one or two touch chances. Now, not just any one or two touch touch chances i'm not saying people should shoot from kickoff right because yeah. shot location is important so it's about generating repeatable chances that strikers can get off within one or two um, touches within dangerous goal scoring opportunities so that's not just into the good location but it's also a pass that makes it finds that uh, the mm -hmm. the striker in in their stride so that they can take as few settling touches as possible before getting that shot away yeah right? so martin martin erdegaard is a really good example of that right how many times do you see the ball being cut back from the byline to him on the edge of the box and he just puts it into the far corner um yeah with a first touch shot um that kind of that kind of idea um richarlison so richarlison is interesting because Ange postacoglu's system is famous for actually 
um, using its nine in a very sort of limited way. So I, th- I remember last season when he was at Celtic, um, I think on average, Kyogo Furuhashi was, was taking less than 15 touches in the, in the classic sense of the word. So 15 a- actions on the ball every game, which is really, really, really low. Um, I think um, Richarlison early on in the season took like 27 touches in a game and he was the player on the pitch with the fewest touches. So 14 point whatever it was, was, was as an average is incredibly low. And that's because yeah. Ange Postacoglu's whole system is designed to generate those sorts of one or two touch chances in the, in the penalty area that are dangerous. And so the role of the striker in his system is largely to stay in those areas um, between the two centre-backs, often pushing the offside line as, as much as you can to try and generate space between the lines for your teammates. But the general idea is to be in that position to score those chances when they yeah. emerge. To put it in the bleeding net. Yeah, exactly. To just His job is simply to, to be a goal scorer. Um, and so with that in mind, I, I then looked at the Richarlison data and I've analysed 27 shots that he's had that are non-headed um, uh, non-penalties this season 26 of them were one or two touch shots and the the one that wasn't was a three touch shot that he took against Liverpool I think he was playing technically as a an outside forward anyway at that point so the data was really interesting to me not because and we've made a video on this as well which is again available on all of our channels but the the, the data is interesting to me not because it's like oh well look clearly Richarlison is the best striker and it's great that, that he's in Ange Postacoglu's system because it's, you know, he's the best striker they could possibly get. Instead, actually, the logic almost works the other way around. And you could say, we learn a lot about the system from the way that, that Richarlison is playing it because the system is designed to get one or two touch chances. And that is ex- almost exclusively the kind of chance that Richarlison is getting. So Richarlison is a perfect profile of player for that kind of system. And as a result, if you actually look at his underlying numbers, he's had the most productive uh, season in front of goal in his whole career um yeah and again like and he's he's the perfect profile sorry because we knew that he took a f- took few touches before shots before in his career or for another reason because how did you know like at the beginning of the season that this was going to happen because he fits that profile of a, a player who doesn't need to do a huge amount other than exist in those spaces be disciplined right. to not drop off the front line so we saw a few times in pre-season harry kane still playing at spurs in that system and his tendency is always because of what's happened in the past to a degree, but because he's also one of the greatest footballers who's ever lived to drop out of the front line, to pick the ball up and to, you know, pull the strings creatively. If you do more of a complete player. Sure. And if you do that, then sure, it may help them to generate more of these one or two touch chances, but he's not going to be in the the area to finish them off, right? Because there's a few examples in preseason where he would drop in, help the movement, they would generate the chance there would be no striker in the in the in that central space where where you can score from. So, a, a really nice example because it shows how if your system is designed to generate these dangerous one or two touch shots, you would think that it would make you more likely to score more goals. Um, but and that's and that's true and. Then when we look at Richarlison's data, we can see the system is actually working because Richarlison is getting those one or two touch shots in the majority of situations. Um, and yeah, he's he's converting a lot of them into goals as well. I think it's uh, five goals that he scored from those sorts of situations. It's not just him scoring from headers, although headers, I think, in this situation count as well because it's him playing off the shoulder of the centre-backs in, in those dangerous areas. But 
it's just a really nice way of showing of the data showing why Antipostokoglu's system is so dangerous because it recognizes yeah. this is what a team needs to do to score goals. So let's do it and and have the right kind of profile of striker in those situations to then score those uh, chances. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's quite interesting though, isn't it? Because it makes me think about what fans or viewers want out of football players and how we remember players as iconic because when you think about all of the best you know all these lists of the best strikers in 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 the history of football i think of players like brazilian ronaldo zlatan ibrahimovic at his at his peak you know cristiano ronaldo also in there messi of course the moments that we remember that define them as those iconic great strikers are the moments where either they take a shitload of touches and dribble it around people and do something which no one else can do they do something incredibly acrobatic or shoot from a really long distance, which, you know, is the opposite of what we're talking about here. And I even think like with Erling Haaland, he's becoming iconic because of the number of goals that he scores and because of how he looks, right? Not really because of how he plays. You can see like his athleticism, his, si- his size, his physicality on the pitch is exciting to watch to a certain extent. And it's nice to see someone express like that level of physical prowess over an opponent you know in a kind of like olympic way that's fun to watch but i can't think of a goal that he scored that really makes me sort of stand stand up from my seat do you know what i mean like is this is this a part of like the evolution of how goals are scored in football of more like team goals as opposed to those iconic strikers or am i just looking back on the past with rose tinted glasses and, and remembering like individual iconic moments from very long careers no not at all i think there's there's two different ways that you can solve problems on a football pitch right one of them is to offer structural solutions via coaching to get the team to do things that will you know make them bigger than the sum of their parts um which is what Ange postacoglu is doing right and why yeah. richarlison looks a better striker in that system than he might do individually Sure. The that's, other thing, that's the communist system. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is that if you've got players like Zlatan Ibrahimovic or Messi or Ronaldo, yeah. then you don't... The billionaire system. Yeah. You don't need to worry too much about like solving problems in a structural sense because you have individuals who can solve those problems as well. So yeah, this is sure. not me wanting to come here and say, you know, all teams should only ever do this. But, I, you know, for some teams where they don't have elite, elite creative and uh, productive players... Uh, both in terms yeah. of generating chances, but also getting them away and scoring them. The best way of overcoming that is to make sure you have a system that allows you to get the most out of players who maybe aren't at that sort of a level, elite level of, mm. of finishing or creativity. Yeah. I always think it's very annoying that all the best strikers play at the best teams because you can never really tell how much better they are. You know, I, I wish Holland and Messi did play for teams, you know, at the bottom of the 
Premier League and La Liga, or even in League Two, you know, mm. and then we could really see how good they were, John. That would be that would present something interesting to you from a data perspective, wouldn't it? I think so. And coming back to Erling Haaland, like the reason why he's such a cheat code in in that respect is because he plays a very sort of traditional striker role, and those those guys who do that, they don't need to really do a huge amount, right? They have to be good finishers. They have to get in good positions. They have to be physical enough to yeah. get the chances. So Chris Wood, in, in my data set, because I've only logged him when he's been at Forest this season, he's just got an incredible turn of return of investment in terms of what he's actually doing because he's scoring a ton of goals. But there's no one out there who's realistically saying, well, Chris Wood should be playing for, for one of the elite teams. Um, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, part of that is... To do you, think the, he sh- you think Pep Guardiola should sign him up in the summer? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the difference, the difference between Chris Wood and, um, and Erling Haaland, and this is why I wouldn't recommend that Guardiola sign Chris Wood this summer, is that at the moment, it, Chris Wood is clearly going through a purple patch, right, where just finishes are coming off every time for him. The reason why Erling Haaland is such a dangerous goal scorer is because he has the physicality to be able <laughs> yeah. to, to... His whole life is a purple patch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, he, 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 he has the physicality, like we said, to get those shots away really quickly without compromising on his shooting action. And that means yeah. that when you're playing for a team like Man City, if they can generate those kind of chances that you score, he's just going to score more than anyone else playing that kind of role. Um, yeah. it, that comes yeah. down to like his, his physicality and his, his, yeah, his athletic ability to, to, to score these chances. He's quicker, he's stronger, he's taller, etc. So all of those things go towards him just being a super, super dangerous goal scorer. But yeah, in terms of comparing him to someone who's maybe a bit more aesthetically pleasing to watch, right? Obviously, people are going to choose Messi or, or Ronaldo or, or whoever for, for oh yeah, yeah. you know, game-changing moments where they pick the ball up in midfield and then fashion something with it. But with, with Haaland, it's just, there's, there's an extent to which you know, it's aesthetically pleasing to see someone who is what you would develop in a lab if you wanted a goal scorer, right? Um, yeah. It's a different kind of aesthetic and it's, a lot of it's down to do with, uh, to do with repetition and the fact that he just does the right thing all the time almost. Um, although sure. this season actually, and this is the thing, right? This season he's had, relatively speaking, quite a poor season in front of goal, despite the fact that he is the top goal scorer in the Premier League right now. But in yeah. watching through all of his shots... He missed a lot of sitters this season, which he didn't do last season, which is why he scored whatever it was, 52 goals in the calendar year or something like that across the course of the season. Um, I have to say, I think however many iconic goals he scores, the most iconic thing that Erling Haaland ever did and will ever do, I think this is true. I remember reading about it somewhere that he drove around Dortmund with his car windows down, really loudly playing the Champions League anthem and singing along. (laughs) What a strange guy! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's elite in its own way. In its own way, right? It's so great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Listen, that's Erling Haaland. He's good. Yeah. Big fucking whoop, man. Forty minutes of a podcast. Come on, John. Get your game face on. <laughs> Ollie Watkins. Tell me about Ollie Watkins because Aston Villa. There was there were all these stories that went round at the you know halfway through last season that were uh, or oh we told Watkins to just play in the box and then he started scoring more goals instead of going wide and it's like we've we've fixed football. It did seem to work for him, didn't it? Has that been reflected in your data collection with him? Yeah, Ollie Watkins is an interesting one because, like you say, I think he's, they've definitely worked on getting him into those more dangerous goal-scoring situations. Ollie Watkins is a player who originally was playing as a wide forward um, and he does have a tendency to 
to have that creep into his game as well. So you'll often see him picking the ball up in channels and running in a diagonal towards goal and getting shots away. Um, but I think Unai Emery's really worked with him on making sure that he is, again, that number nine who's in the place where you want your number nine to be because the rest of the team are trying to get the ball into that into that kind of space. But I've, I've highlighted him actually in the notes because um, he's not a particularly like quick striker so um he when it comes to touches per shot he's like mid table he's ninth in in our two touch timing um uh metric he's uh where, where is he here quite far down 17th okay so um his for two touch shots he's averaging around 1.14 seconds per two touch shot so and again it's worth saying that like the two touch shot sample size is pretty small um, sample size so you know take it with a pinch of salt I'm not surprised that Erling Haaland shows up comfortably the quickest on that on that metric but I wouldn't like set my stock in where players are finishing but he's this is mm. Ollie Watkins is getting a lot of goals this season and he's not getting a lot of goals through having the ability to take those shots those two touch shots really quick um, but I think that he's a, he's an interesting one because you do get that aspect of like good coaching can actually produce more goals in him. So maybe another area where where Aston Villa could benefit from him is is just trying to um, get him taking those shots a little bit quicker, perhaps seeing if they can increase his shot timing, see whether or not that um, actually changes things. There was a goal against the team a few weeks ago, and I can't remember the team uh, off the top of my head, but he gets a really quick shot away, and a, a result of that shot is that it goes past quite the keeper quite close to the keeper it looks like the keeper should maybe save it but it's because mm. the rhythm of the shot is so quick that the keepers thought oh I've got a bit more time to set myself and then the shots come in and he's like I think maybe it was against Spurs actually um, he hasn't had time to, to properly set himself and so the ball goes in in past him so I think that's a an area that we could we could look at for that but I also think it's worth saying you don't need to be super quick to be a high volume goal scorer right you don't need to um necessarily get your shots away as quickly as possible there are going to be other ways of, of being able to do that one of those will be you know the ability to be in behind defenses and, and play the ball around goalkeepers that's a really important like mechanic to to be able to score so again I'm, I'm wanting to avoid people from coming coming away from this and just being like the best strikers are all the ones who can get the shots away quickest actually there's going to be some strikers who are going to have different skill sets that are based on um, different, you know, shooting mechanics, different situations in the game. Um, the reason w why I say that is that w I think coming out of this at the end of that process of saying how important is time to shooting, the answer that I get is, you know, it's like anything. If you if you if you can make it work for yourself, it's really important. And there's always marginal gains to be found. I think in trying to improve the speed of your shooting me mechanic as a striker. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that if you're not quick that you can't also be a high volume goal scorer because there's other factors that come into it. Um, and I think that's almost what I wanted to do um, coming in from a, a position where I was like, it feels as though with expected goals metrics being so widespread, people just say, oh, as long as you're in the right position to score, you're going to be fine. There are always like other factors that come into it. Um, and you should always assess every one of these metrics. So timing touches taken uh, whatever other metrics we're going to look at in the context of actually what does this what is this player trying to do what is their team trying to do uh, why might it be the case that they're um, that they're that they're such a good goal scorer at the Premier League level um, so yeah I thought Ollie Watkins was kind of an interesting example from that yeah. point of view we're talking data safety people mm. right we're talking about getting those binary gloves on handling it with care <laughs> 
not trying to get big, you know, sexy headlines out of stuff. Trying to keep it as boring as possible. That's that's, that's the, what you're saying, the, right? The, the more information you have on things, the more you can learn about, th- the more the better context you have to learn from it. And I, I would say that's definitely true with this, is there's certain strikers who you look at and look at the data and you're like, I understand why their data looks this way. Um, yeah. Have you ever tried, though, hearing something, just reading it wherever, not checking the source, thinking, oh, that sounds good and right, and then just saying that to other people? Because I've, I've tried that, and it works really well for me in social scenarios. It, it's tempting to do that. I think it's, it's quite easy to do that um, in my position, because like, if you come up with a good take, um, you have then whole season for that take to sort of exist. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's a tendency to just be like, my take is going to be good forever, right? Like, I don't know. Arsenal are, bad at, worst Arsenal are bad at build-up, which they were at the beginning of the season. Maybe it's changing so, now, right? And so uh, is it going to be the case that I'm going to just be a little bit too slow responding to the improvements they make in, in their build-up play, sure. for example? What's the worst take you've ever had that at the time you were convinced was right and retrospectively, even though you can look back and go, yeah, look, some of the context was correct when I was saying it, I missed this thing or I missed that element of information that I now have that changes my opinion about it because obviously I was wrong and I'm a bad, bad boy. I, I've never done that. You've I'm never always done right. that? No, no right. seriously, though, the, the answer is probably Trent Alexander-Arnold as a six um, because right. I think that my criticisms were correct, but my criticisms were too narrow-minded. That I wasn't considering the fact that what actually ended up happening. So I think Trent Alexander-Arnold, they started playing as a sort of classic inverted fullback and it didn't really work. And so for me, I was like, okay, this is a sign that the, the project has failed. But obviously Liverpool have been good since that happened. Um, yeah. And I think the reason why it's worked out is because they've changed the the role that Alexander-Arnold is playing so that the, the, the sorts of things that are being expected of him are quite different actually from what you would expect from a classic inverted fullback and it's working really, really right. well for them. So yeah, that's, it's a case of just my worldview being too small and and realising sure. that actually it's not just about the tactical theory being Im- imposed on things, it's actually that the coaches can be like, well, let's just tweak the tactical theory and then, and then you're like, oh yeah, I guess I didn't really think about that. <laughs> I didn't think about it was in the real world. Mine yeah. is that I thought that... Uh, Wes Hulan was better than Messi. Wes he? Wes he. But it um, just turns out that Emmy Buendia was and not Wes Hulan. It was just, <laughs> well, I was one generation out. Here's another one. Did you know people always misuse this? But you know the word factoid? Mm. It actually means a fact that is commonly believed to be true but isn't true. But people use it because they think it means a small fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no one cool. fact could be smaller than another. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess facts can be smaller, right? You can have small can facts. Can they? Big... Aren't yeah, yeah, facts yeah. all equal? If they're a fact, a fact is a level of totality. If it is a fact, it is totally accurate, right? <laughs> How can something be more totally accurate than something else? Can't be. It is a fact that I am here as the host of this episode today, right? It's also a fact that you're the host of this podcast. Does mm. that mean is one bigger than the other? Is one, I mean, one is better than the other, but is one, <laughs> is one more, I mean, one is. One I would is, say that you are a other, bigger but, uh, fact than me. I am a smaller well, fact to you. Yeah. I don't <laughs> I think anyone's disagreeing with that. A lot more facts that. around the middle. I think that's what you're. Uh, uh, to be honest, I'd describe you as a factoid, to be honest. Um, yeah, I am a factoid. Yeah. yeah. I'm a, a fat toad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't really pay off at the end there, did it? No. What a shame. You tried, though. You anyway, tried. 
Let's we did try. Let's talk about some other teams now. You mentioned Darwin Nunez before. Mm-hmm. Is it Nunez or Nunez? Has he got the? It is a Nunez. The, he has the sil, Sildilla. No, it's not that. Is it Tilda? The Tilda? I think it's called Tilda. The Tilda Swinton. The Tilda Swints. Okay, yeah. uh, Darwin Nunez. You talked about him before. He's he's kind of at times. I'm I'm someone who for the, this season, as you know, I've been sort of a little bit more outside of the of the day to day football grind, aka. I haven't been watching football. So what I'm, I'm picking up through the lens of friends talking about it, seeing discussion online, Darwin Nunez seems to kind of oscillate between just a figure of mockery and then, you know, one of the, one of the great strikers in the Premier League. I can't really put my finger on where he is. Can you contextualise that with your shot and timing talk? Yeah, like the original prompting for the whole research was whether or not timing actually influenced or informed the debate at all and having watched through all of Erling Haaland's chances this season that are non-headed and not penalties and also Darwin Nunez's um, I think the conclusion I've come to is that Darwin Nunez is a very good footballer but he's bad at finishing it's it's just as simple as that Um, I don't know I don't know how else you um, how else you, you you quantify it but I suppose with Darwin Nunes, he's he's similar to Holland in that his like ex- insane athleticism gets him into really good goal scoring positions, and the reason why Darwin Nunes is uh, sorry, Erling Holland is like a generationally good goal scorer is because when he gets into those positions, he scores more. Um, Darwin Nunes is a little bit more erratic when it comes to the finishing, and I'm sure there are reasons why. If you broke it down biomechanically, which is something that I would never do unless I was uh, aided by a biomechanics expert, but I'm, I'm sure that's the the level at which your analysis needs to take place. Although I would say one thing, and what that one thing is, is that I noticed that with Darwin Nunez, he's very one-dimensional in the te- the types of chances that he's creating. Maybe I should say three-dimensional because I think there's three different types of chances that he generally generates and takes um and this is a really good as an aside this is a really good reason to just watch all of a player's shots from a season in a row because you start picking up on like repeated tendencies Uh, and i think he was he was very one-dimensional in that respect so he has the shot you know the two that he scored against newcastle where he's wide and he pulls it back across the goalkeeper into the far corner on his Uh right hand side He's really sure, good at those the chances. Messi. Yeah. yeah, he scored one against Norwich this weekend, I think, doing exactly yeah. that thing. The other thing that he does is like the standard playing as a nine, getting in between, you know, in behind back nines. Salah sets him up and he taps it in or yeets it over, depending on what what kind of day it is. The other yeah. thing he does is he often plays as a left forward, right, a little bit deeper. And what he does in those situations a lot is that he picks the ball up, cuts in on the diagonal onto his stronger right foot, and he wants to get to the edge of the box and then try and curl it into the top corner from from the edge of the box. Mm. And beyond that, like most of his chances like fit those three those three different buckets. And I think there's right. a there maybe a sense that um he can he, he he he's difficult to defend from his from a pure athleticism point of view. But maybe he's a little bit easier to defend in terms of a creativity point of view. So you know what he's going to do beforehand and you can sort of take steps to, to make it yeah. harder for him to do that. Again, like Because the defenders the argument- are going to prep and also they sure. might not watch 500 of his shots, but they're going to watch you know, his, yeah. his, his performances in the last few games, right? If you, if you know that he's coming in on the diagonal from the left and he's going to try and shoot with his right, you just make sure that that shot isn't on. And you take the consequences of if he, he moves on to his left and does something with it because he probably won't be as good uh same yeah. again with the with the 
the shot back across the goalkeeper if you know that's what he's going to try and do. And the reason the reason why he's so good at it is because he's athletically good enough to get around defenders and take the shot anyway. So there's nothing they can do yeah. about it, right? So there's an element of the Iron Robin about this. But um, I do think that that this is, kind this of is thing making a lot it... of sense to me because this is exactly how I play against you in Rocket League. <laughs> I know it's okay to overcommit in an attacking phase because I know if I leave the goal open and you have the ball and there's no defender, you're going to miss anyway. So it doesn't matter. There's no need for me to to defend you in any way at all. But I only know that because I've prepared by playing 500 games against you. No comment, no comment. But um, okay. yeah, that's the same the same sort of principle. But yeah, Fine. Darwin Nunes, a fantastic striker who has finishing issues, which I think everyone knew. So again, another profound finding in my research. <laughs> <laughs> 52 minutes into the podcast. Now, Rasmus Hoyland. Mm. This is interesting because we haven't seen that much of him yet and he's settling into what is, let's be honest... A rubbish team. Uh, tell me about Hoyland. Hoyland is interesting because I think, according to this timing data, he profiles probably closest to Erling Haaland. Um, so, right. you know, the same kind of striker, right? He's a classic number nine. Same kind of a... name, sounds yeah, the same. Exactly, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. I'm with you. Um, they've, they started off with the name and then they filled in the rest of the details. Sure, um, sure. But yeah. The FM regens are really not putting in the effort that they used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah, we, we know that Hoyland has, has struggled to score in the Premier League this season. Um, and I think a big part of that is, you know, he scored goals in, in uh, European competitions, not so much in the Premier League. And I think the, the a lot of people would take that information and be like, well, clearly he's just not good enough for the Premier League. But I think that he because he profiles so similarly to, you know, players of the profile of Hoyland and, um, and Richarlison, that you're completely dependent on the team generating the sorts of chances that you're going to get. Um, it's a service issue. It's, I think it's a service issue with him. But I think that yeah. stands him in really good stead, right? Because he his, his numbers are, are decent. And I think that, you know, he's one of those, he is a penalty box striker. If you can develop a system which is consistently and repeatedly finding him in those areas, he's going to start scoring you know, high volume goals. So yeah. it's one of those things where Man United have made the right decision in the transfer market. But the problem is, is that they aren't able to actually like d- derive the benefits of that um, of that Cause, decision. Because they made five now. other bad ones. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Okay, that's interesting. He's got that explosiveness, hasn't he? And I like how he makes that uh, constipated face when he's doing a, <laughs> a, an action, and how his hair, little hair flops around like that too. So hopefully, we'll get to see him banging him in a bit more. Nicholas Jackson's another interesting player, new to Chelsea. And again, like a lot of the same sort of conversations. Yeah. Actually, quite a lot of similar conversations about all Premier League uh, top six strikers this season, haven't they? Yeah. So, Nicholas Jackson, I think, is interesting from the point of view that he was until very recently a wide forward. Um, and so, if you look at his data, he's very low down on the touches per shot. Uh, metric because obviously he likes to receive the ball in deeper areas and try and beat players um, getting behind Mm. that way Um, and I think you know a lot of people would be just like well Nicholas Jackson's terrible in front of goal Um, but interestingly enough he shows up third on my two touch timing metric so you've got Erling Haaland at number one with 0.7 and then down at third you've got Nicholas Jackson at 0.81 so very very close in sort of timing to Erling Haaland um, and I think that would surprise a lot of people. Now, again, sample size issues because he doesn't have a huge amount of two-touch uh, sh- shots to, to base that on. But it, the suggestion there is that actually if you can get um, 
Nicholas Jackson into these sorts of positions where he's able to take these two touch chances, you are going to get the benefit of him being able to get his shots away earlier. Now, he has missed a lot of high value chances close to the goal. So again, it could be an example of someone who's shooting too quick for their shooting mechanic. So maybe the solution here is getting him to slow down his his shooting technique in these sorts of areas as well. Um, But I thought that was kind of interesting because I think a lot of a lot of people have responded to the stuff that I put out and been like, well, obviously Chelsea are going to be like super low down uh, on the shot timing thing. Um, and yet in general, he is wanting to pick the ball up and run at players. But actually when you get him into those two touch scenarios that you want your striker to be in, he is, he is actually getting the shots away quite quickly. So um, that that's one thing to check out. I think when he's taking those two touch chances, do we think that he's snatching at shots because he's trying to get them away too quick? Again, could the solution there be just take your time a little bit more and make sure you hit the target? Okay. And the final player you have on your list here is uh, Odson Edouard. Yeah, he's the player who I think after Richarlison maybe stood out to me the most. Um, And he stood out to me the most initially just on the rewatch of his shots. Um, Because I I just think he's a really, really fantastic one, two-touch striker who is playing for a team who generally are going to not give him a huge amount of one, two touch chances. Um, So I remember when he joined Palace and like those first few games, I remember being super impressed by how quickly he got shots away. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is I've, I've talked to, I spoke to baby boy Pinder about this. Right. Because as we know, he's a Palace fan. And I was just sort of like, what's the, what's the general Palace consensus on, Odson Edouard and and he, what's he, the Palace consensus? Like yeah. writing to Buckingham <laughs> yeah. Palace, yeah. and he said, "Well, yeah, Charles Charles the Third, real fan, um, <laughs> but yeah, Meghan Markle, ne- not so much." Sure, um, yeah, and he said to me, "Good finisher, but like doesn't really do anything else that well." And I'm like, "Well, surely this is the sort of player that you need in a number nine side." Like, doesn't obviously, if you're a, a team like Palace, who maybe aren't going to generate as many good chances in the box, um, you, you want someone who's going to be able to do link-up play a little bit better to make the ball stick, etc. But surely yeah. he's the sort of player that you want when you do create those those situations where you know you want to score a goal. You're not going to have many of those situations. You can be sure that he's probably yeah. going to be able to finish them. And there's just a lot. It sounds of like shots. You, gave it, you gave it to Pender with two fists. It sounds like yeah. uh, you really put him in his place. Yeah, I, you know, I, I wanted to. A really, really. What you did is home. you went to him, a, your colleague in a professional office space, and you said, "What do you think about this thing that you're passionate about?" And he told you, and then you went, "You're wrong." <laughs> That's right. So the sample size that I've got for Odson Edward is 29 shots, uh, but he scored six goals in that time, um, which is a pretty good rate of return for that amount of shots on my on my data. And yeah. it's just like when I was watching through the chances, I was just like every chance where I was like, "He's really got to do well with this." He did well with it. There's a lot of stuff right. where he's like picking the ball up outside the box and take it. Interestingly, he's like when he's setting himself outside the box, he's quite slow and cumbersome. But actually, when he is in those scenarios where he has to get the shot away quickly, he does it really quickly. So he's second on the two touch timing list after Erling Haaland. Um, is he a one... player then that you think could move, you know, like could be deserving of a move to a club that might be able to provide those opportunities more? more... What's yeah. the perfect team in the Premier League for Arsenal? Spurs, Spurs. Spurs. Because they're generating those oh, one, like two, those one or two touch chances, and he's, I think, he's much more consistent at finishing them than than Richarlison is. And he's did you the recommend same him in your sensible transfers episode? I didn't know, but I'd done Why the Spurs. I'd done the Spurs one, but we didn't do strikers. I don't think did we? Oh, okay. I don't think we did, but Maybe I, not, I, right. I definitely would have done uh, had I done the research by that point. Um, oh, I like that. 
Spurs it's fun, fans, isn't it? Go watch Odson Edouard. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, another example of a player who maybe is a little bit undervalued because they're not a well-rounded profile. But when it comes to, okay, stick him in a team where you don't need to be a well-rounded profile like Richarlison, and then you'd probably see him feast in those context, yeah. in that context. Did he come from Celtic? Celtic. No. Yeah, so, he did come from but Celtic. he didn't overlap with Ange Postacogli. So. But okay. again, that would have been an interesting one, right? If we'd have seen Edouard yeah. under, under Ange at Celtic. Oh, oh, I like that link. Okay, fine. Do you want to do the training ground bit? Or I feel like you already did that. Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about how you can action all of this stuff. But yeah, the takeaway I guess I would want everyone to leave with is is this idea that when it comes to like analysing finishing and, and, and shooting actions, that the more information that we have about those actions, the better. Um, yeah. Obviously, shot location is going to be the, the biggest predictor of a, of a team's goal scoring. But I think that the more information you have on the context and the kind of shots and the timings that you've got for individual strikers, the better place you are going to be to uh, actually be able to assess how dangerous those strikers are in front of goal. And I, I would recommend... Look, scouts do this already, right? Um, analysts do this already. I've had a few people from a few different clubs come to me and say really great to see you doing this work because this is what we are doing at clubs right now and mm. a lot of this isn't in the the wider conversation in the in the main in the mainstream media um yeah but yet, so yeah far be it from me to say scouts go out there and make sure you're tracking these sorts of things but it's it's definitely changed my view on on how to evaluate strikers uh, and just giving me a much better sense of like rather than just going oh well this guy overperforms his xg this guy underperforms it. Actually, I think we can interrogate those figures and be like, is this player underperforming their XG because they're not getting shots away quick enough? So the the, the those chances are being slightly overvalued by the models, etc. Yeah. Is this player shooting too quickly? Is that why they're not um, actually being able to get the benefit of the chances they're finding? That's cool. Well, thanks for your opinion. And to add to that, uh, my valuable takeaway uh, from this would be uh, La Porchetta, which is a, a lovely uh, Italian restaurant in North London. They do delightful margaritas and profiteroles, and they have recently started doing takeaway, delivery even, not even just takeaways. And I get them What's the timing taken like away to my house. Timing very, very efficient. Yeah. I would say anywhere between 14 minutes and uh, 20. Sometimes a little longer if it's a Friday or a Saturday night. But I'm always left satisfied after mm. scoffing one of them and a thing of chips and a whole thing of profiteroles and sometimes a Coke Zero. So if you take anything away from this podcast, <laughs> take it from La Porchetta. John, thank you for your time today. I would just like to say that to, in, a, in a bid to justify me spending so much time logging all of that data, and I am going to log the data for the rest of the season, I am going to make my data available, free free to use for people. So if there's any uh, analysts out there, fanalists in particular, who want to get hold of it, then it will be, um, once I've mined it for all it's worth, it will sure. be available to people, so do check that you, out. You really are a hero, aren't you? You're um, the people's a man hero. Of the people, the goblins. Also a hero of. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. But I hope I hope the goblin community can find <laughs> some use in the in the in the data uh, mm. when they take a break from mining the magical ores that they have to mine that's, on a day to day basis. Well, thank for you for wizards. thank you for interviewing me and asking the questions that I wrote out very admirably. Sure. Sure. I did a good job of making it sound fun, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Yeah, I think yeah. some people may have been tricked into thinking it was fun because you introduced it, right? <laughs> I wonder if those people are still here now. No. <laughs> no one's here now. <laughs> no one's here now. And to no one, we'll see you again next week. Thanks, John. Bye. Bye. Bye.